Hello and welcome to the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on July 2nd, 2021 from South Carolina Public Radio Studios here in Columbia. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. Happy Independence Day! Yes, we know America isn't perfect, folks, but we must continue to strive toward a more perfect union together. More listening, less yelling. Let's learn some more history together. I mean, just by listening to this podcast, you're doing a small part of your civic duty by staying informed about your government and those who represent you and others. Congrats. And just imagine if we, you know, we're talking about tea prices here. You would have known. You would have known here first about those tea prices. That all being said, makes for an awkward announcement right here that the lead will be taking next week off in honor of Independence Day and my own Independence Day, my birthday, later in the week. Also, be prepared for a shifting summer pod schedule as we accommodate vacation plans and as we ramp up production of our new podcast, South of Spooky. Stay tuned, folks. Stay tuned. Now, this meaty lead episode features a look at the changing politics of one PD county. Governor Henry McMaster weighs in on several issues, including the end of federal unemployment benefits, while national economic data continues to be rosy. The future of Confederate imagery in the halls of Congress was on the chopping block this week, and we hear about some earmarks that could benefit South Carolina infrastructure. The Russ McKinney has an update on state roads for you this July 4th weekend, and we hear the fourth and final nursing series piece by Scott Morgan. And there's so much more, folks, so stick around. Now, we're more than halfway through 2021, so obvious question we want to know about, what are you guys doing for New Year's Eve? Tell us your plans. We want to know. Just kidding. No one knows until two days before. But have you kept your 2021 New Year's resolution? Let us know. Leave us a message, 803-563-7169. Leave us your name, where you're calling from, and how the year's been so far. We're in the half-year mark here, folks. We need a little checkup, check-in. Let us know, 803-563-7169. Now for the latest in South Carolina. Currently, the spread of COVID-19 is moderate, according to data from the Department of Health and Environmental Control. There have been 9,830 total deaths, and currently there are 597,261 total cases being reported in 46 counties as of July 2nd at 4 p.m. Our current percent positive rate is 2.8%. There are currently 124 patients hospitalized with COVID-19, 37 are in intensive care, and 16 are on ventilators. Our seven-day moving average for cases is 175, and after cases declined for nine consecutive weeks, they budged up for the week ending June 26. An easy way not to get COVID, however, is to get vaccinated. Which is what 1,832,494 eligible South Carolinians, or 42.4%, have done so far. 48.6% of those eligible have received at least one vaccine dose. Nationwide, 67% of adults have received at least one dose, which is just below the White House's goal of 70% by Independence Day. Remember folks, we're still not free from this virus. All right, let's take you to the Pearl of the PD. I'm talking Darlington County. Governor McMaster was outside of the Darlington County Courthouse on Wednesday in support of long-serving Darlington Clerk of Court Scott Suggs, who announced that after 25 years as a Democrat, 
he would be switching parties ahead of his 2024 re-election bid. House Speaker Jay Lucas of nearby Hartsville was there, and Republican Party Chairman Drew McKissick was also on hand to applaud Suggs's change in a county that has become much redder during the latter part of Suggs's career. Here's McKissick talking about that steady change. Uh, this past election year in 2020, we delivered more votes for our presidential candidate than any time in the history of South Carolina. Re-elected a U.S. Senator, won back a congressional seat, beat Democrats by 17 points on straight ticket voting all across the state. And I know here in Darlington County, I think every Republican that was on the ballot carried Darlington County in this past election. So the party's on the move. We're growing here and all across the PD. We've got so many of our uh, county party officers from other counties here, Florence County, Marlboro County. Uh, we've got Lee County over here. Uh, we're on the move. We're growing here in the state. And it's because people are responding to our party and our conservative principles. It's that message that's making the difference. And that's what's causing the growth. Just a note here with what McKissick said, Sheriff James Hudson Jr. won as a Democrat by some 5,000 votes last November, and the only other Democrat countywide is long-serving coroner Todd Hardy, who won unopposed. Now, following the program, Suggs' wife Angie pinned an elephant pin on his lapel. Then moments later, he held a Bible as McMaster swore in Angie as the county's new auditor after winning countywide as a Republican in 2020 by five points herself. Now, Darlington County, like many other parts of the PD, have transitioned redder and redder over the past years. And House Speaker Jay Lucas mentioned the changes he's seen during his tenure. As a Republican in Darlington County in 1998, I was the loneliest guy. <laughs> but um, the last 23 years have brought tremendous change in our county. We have a county council. There's now four Republicans and four Democrats. Lee Flowers, I believe, is here. We had our first elected county-wide officer, Jeff Robinson. Where is Jeff? Jeff Robinson, Jeff, thank you for being a trailblazer for us. And um, this past election cycle, Angie Suggs. I was so proud of Angie. She went out, she worked. She worked harder than anybody I knew. And she is now going to governor. When you swear in, she's going to become our elected auditor. But there was there was one problem in that household that she was married <laughs> to the clerk of court who was um, elected and was a Democrat. So that I don't know what that's like having a Carolina Clemson family. <laughs> but um, I know when you come home, it probably ain't gonna be great. Following the events, I caught up with the governor who did not say whether he still had confidence in Department of Juvenile Justice Director Freddie Pugh, who has overseen an agency where violence among juveniles is more common, wages are stagnant, employees suffer from horrible morale, and remedies previously published by the Legislative Audit Council were not implemented. South Carolina Senators this week gave a 34-4 vote of no confidence for Pugh on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, McMaster said this in response to whether he still has confidence in Pew. Well, like I say, it's a, it's a tough situation. And if you look around the country at departments of correction and prison system, and particularly you know, juvenile justice, that's, that's where we, we have problems all around the country. But we are, we are working hard to see that the, the recent events have reflected some, some weaknesses, and we're working to fix those. Only McMaster has the ability to remove an agency head. Meanwhile, two new agency leaders, appointed by McMaster, were easily confirmed by the Senate on Tuesday. Former House Judiciary Committee Chairman and U.S. Attorney Peter McCoy Jr. will chair the Board of Directors for the beleaguered state-owned utility Santee Cooper. 
an agency he heavily investigated as part of the committee he co-chaired looking into the VC Summer nuclear power plant expansion boondoggle. He has goals to strengthen Santee Cooper's ties to the legislature and improve transparency. Lawmakers this year sent McMaster a bill to reform, not sell the agency. Just a little reminder there. And McMaster, however, stood by his intent to sell the utility, but also sign that reform measure into law. The Senate also confirmed Harry Lightsey as the new director for the powerful Department of Commerce that Bobby Hitt had steered for years. Lightsey is the former president of AT&T's Southeast Region and director of General Motors' Federal Government Affairs and Emerging Technology Division. Hitt oversaw more than $35.8 billion in capital investment in the state during his decade-long tenure and more than 129,000 jobs announced. He also helped grow the automotive sector in the state. And going back to the governor, lawmakers overturned many of McMaster's vetoes this week dealing with earmarks that totaled $153 million. The governor said he understands the needs for these projects, but more transparency on how tax dollars are being spent is critical. The ones that they that overturned were the ones for earmarks, and there were a lot millions of dollars there. Uh, they have made some steps in identifying who the sponsor is for these funds going to various localities and things. They've, they've taken some steps, but still the people of the state cannot read the, the easily get the information and find out exactly what their money is being spent on. And I think that all of our people uh, have a entitled to know exactly what the money is being spent on, and that's why I'll, I'll continue to press the legislature to see that that information, that transparency is there uh, 100%. Now going to Washington, the U.S. House voted 285 to 120 on legislation that would remove statues depicting Confederate and other white supremacist leaders from the halls of Congress. The list of statues and imagery included South Carolina's statues of Confederate General Wade Hampton and John C. Calhoun, the former senator, congressman, vice president, and avowed racist. Sixty-seven Republicans joined Democrats, including Representative Nancy Mace of the 1st Congressional District. She told the Post and Courier, quote, Our country and South Carolina have moved on from our racist past. Our capital needs to do the same, quote. Now, a simple look around our statehouse grounds begs to differ. You know that dude on a horse? Wade Hampton. Statue of angry-looking guy inside the statehouse lobby with wild hair? JCC. Don't believe that's racist? Well, listen to our last episode with USC professor Lydia Matisse Brandt on the history of some of these statues on the statehouse grounds that can only be removed by a two-thirds vote of the legislature. House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, the only other member of our delegation to support the measure, said, quote, what we should do today is relegate these statues to the dustbin of history. The bill now heads to the Senate. Let's start off our business section with some numbers. The Department of Labor announced that employers added 850,000 jobs in June. This is above what economists were forecasting and above the average of the three previous months, according to the Associated Press. Despite the gains, particularly in the leisure and hospitality sectors, the unemployment rate edged up to 5.9% from 5.8%. Now, we're still not at the pre-pandemic low of 3.5%, and the economy is still 6.8 million jobs short from the before time. 
But as a result of the labor crunch, average hourly wages have moved up 3.6% from a year ago. And here's even more encouraging economic data. Axios reports American house prices rose by 14.6% in the year to April, the fastest rate in 30 years, according to S&P Dow Jones. The research firm said a COVID-19-driven desire to move from urban apartments to suburban dwellings is behind the increase. Meanwhile, an index of American consumer confidence produced by the conference board rose for the fifth month running. People are shopping. People are buying. What are you buying? 803-563-7169. However, some international data remains troubling. The Economist reports that the United Nations warned that the impact of the pandemic on tourism could cost the global economy $4 trillion, much more than had been estimated. $4 trillion, folks. Now, international tourist arrivals declined by 73% in 2020 and by 88% year-on-year in the first three months of 2021. Without more vaccine sharing, poorer countries, which rely heavily on tourism revenues, will be the slowest to recover. Moving on, enhanced federal unemployment benefits are officially a thing of the past. And Governor McMaster, who canceled them early, is confident that more jobs in this labor market will be filled by ending the extra $300 in weekly unemployment benefits earlier than planned. Entirely confident that this will work. Uh, South Carolina is on the way up. We did not shut down like they did in, in other states. Uh, we, a lot of times we were criticized in the national media for not having shut down like they did in other states. Turns out we did it uh, the right way. A lot of those other states are digging out. Uh, they're deeply in debt, uh, maybe even close to bankruptcy in some places, but not South Carolina. Our people uh, did it right, we believe, and while other states are digging out, we are, we are taking off. So I would say to all those looking for work uh, that we have availabilities for retraining and instruction through the technical college systems. Uh, we have employers who are eager to have people to come to work and it, it's time to get back to work because the future in South Carolina, I think the next 10 years it could be transformative. I think we could see economic progress that we have not seen before. The most recent unemployment data from June 12th shows that more than 62,000 South Carolinians were receiving those federal benefits. Now, I know we have Josh's section this week, but here is a big competitor for most popular section, and that is Russ McKinney, folks. Now, did you notice what happened on July 1st? Hmm? Think hard, think long. No, I mean, besides an actual state budget going to effect, right? Oh, everyone was waiting for that. Now, gas prices arose two cents. Specifically, the per-gallon gas tax that is a year away now from being fully phased into 12 cents per gallon that lawmakers approved back in 2017 to create billions in revenue to fix our horrible roads. That is what happened on July 1st. For more on this, the Russ McKinney has this report for you. The tax paid on a gallon of gasoline in the state increased by two cents this July 1st, putting it at just under 27 cents a gallon. It marks the fifth year of a six-year phased-in 12 cents a gallon increase in the gas tax to generate more money for highway and bridge improvements. That infusion of money has allowed the State Department of Transportation to dramatically increase its work program. As State DOT Secretary Christy Hall recently told a state Senate subcommittee, DOT has tripled its highway improvement program over the past decade. We've gone from a $1 billion annual highway program year over year to right at $3.2 billion today. This number is actually $3.4 billion because I just signed the $200 million contract to start Malfunction Junction here in the Midlands. 
Malfunction Junction is the state's most congested interstate intersection, and it's a piece of a 14-mile road and bridge rework project where Interstates 20, 26, and 126 converge in Columbia. The planned work has a price tag of $1.7 billion. Interstate widening and thousands of miles of planned repaving of other roads receives the lion's share of DOT's new funding. Each penny of the gas tax generates $36 million. So far, the new fees, close to $1.8 billion, are in a DOT trust fund used to pay for the sorely needed road and bridge work. The South Carolina Alliance to Fix Our Roads is a business and civic organization that pushed the legislature to enact the roads bill back in 2016 and continues to advocate for better and safer roads. Jennifer Patterson, the group's executive director, gives DOT high marks for the pace of its improvement program. We've already got over 4,000 miles of pavements, and that's arguably everybody's biggest gripe is the road condition. I want to say roughly 75% of that new money that's in that trust fund is going to pavements. And, you know, that that's huge. South Carolina is one of the fastest growing states in the country, meaning more cars and trucks on the road. It also means more congestion and wear and tear on roads. And while the more you drive, the more you pay has been the default method to fund the highway system, state officials are beginning to realize that their projection of gas tax revenue is already beginning to erode. Again, DOT Secretary Christy Hall. The problem with that here recently is by the increased fuel economy and the rapid introduction of electric vehicles and the uh, vehicle fleet here traveling our roads, it seems to be breaking that connection as best as we can tell from our revenue streams. DOT estimates that by 2050, 60% of all new vehicles sold will be electric, and almost half of all vehicles on the road then will be electric-powered. Currently, electric vehicle owners in the state pay a $120 fee every two years. That's one of the lowest in the southeast, and it leaves a gap between that and the amount they would likely pay in gas tax. That's why a Senate Finance Subcommittee is already pondering how best to fund the highway system over the next several decades. Beaufort Senator Tom Davis chairs the subcommittee. I think that the assumption is right, that we are going to see a move toward these electrical vehicles, and that is naturally going to have a consequence on our revenues because predominantly those EVs are going to be charged at home. They, they won't be at fueling stations. The Rhodes Bill, which raised the gas tax in 2016, sparked over three years of contentious debate before it passed in the General Assembly. Legislative leaders now realize they are going to have to once again figure out a way to adequately fund the nation's fourth largest highway system in the years ahead. Thanks, Russ. Hopefully you heard this report while you were sitting on the beach or near the pool instead of stuck in traffic on any number of one of our state's beautiful highways and byways. Speaking of infrastructure, do you hear that? What is that sound? My word, it's the sound of an earmark. Why, we haven't heard that sound since 2010 when they were outlawed in Congress. Oh. <laughs> well, this week, Senator Lindsey Graham announced he was requesting a few earmarks from the Senate Appropriations Committee, including $12 million for right-of-way acquisition to help in the construction and eventual completion of Interstate 73. $18 million for Orangeburg-Berkeley Reach to provide water to the U.S. Highway 176 corridor in the Camp Hall area. $1.5 million for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to conduct a feasibility study for flood risk management in the city of Charleston. Oh yeah, they need that. 
and $1 million again from the Corps to conduct an expedited comprehensive hydrology study in Horry County to analyze the Waccamaw River to mitigate future flood risks, which is also very important because we know that uh, that floods a lot over there from that river. So expect more of these earmarks in the future. We'll see what survives the budget process. And before we leave, I know you thought that was it. We are just 32 days into the hurricane season that was forecasted to be above normal in activity. And guess what? The state is for the third time within the cone of uncertainty for a tropical system. Cone of uncertainty. But this is the first, first hurricane of the season, and its name is Elsa. I'm not going to sing because I've never seen that movie. I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to sing anything from Frozen. Let your kids do that. Now, based on current tracking on Friday, which is what I'm talking to you, this storm could start impacting us mid-next week. A lot of things could change, of course, but please use this time now to prepare and just have a plan should Elsa become a major threat. Also, check out hurricane.sc to find all the information you need and be safe out there. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. All right. Remember how we were talking about myocarditis, which is the inflammation of the heart muscle, and its super rare link to the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines? Well, their Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that the known and potential benefits of COVID-19 vaccinations outweigh the known and potential risks, including the possible risk of myocarditis. Remember, you have a better chance of getting that rare condition from the virus itself, along with a slew of other random symptoms, which we still don't really know that much about. Also, this has only happened in some 1,200 cases out of 177 million receiving at least one dose of the vaccine. So if someone tells you that they're not getting the vaccine because of incredibly remote fear of myocarditis, tell them good luck with that Delta variant. Now, let's jump into the fourth and final segment of Scott Morgan's series on nursing and the pandemic. Scott asks what role social media, healthcare agencies, and the press had in shaping what you thought, and maybe still think, the pandemic was really like for emergency care workers. Here's Scott. At its worst, the COVID pandemic was a real-life horror show for emergency care workers. But the concept of shattered nurses fleeing a broken profession that has no future? That isn't true. And if you thought it was, who could blame you? Social media last year was alight with tales of healthcare workers falling into the abyss. Legitimate press outlets zeroed in on stories of hospitals stacking bodies like firewood in refrigerator trucks in parking lots. Here's the thing, though. That didn't happen here. Michelle LaRoche is a former Wall Street Journal reporter who now teaches journalism at the University of South Carolina. She also does consulting work for NPR. And so for us to talk about a trend without being able to say, well, it might be regional or it's not happening locally, but it's happening nationally or it's you know happening in certain situations, it, we do need to be careful. And, and I think this is part of why people start to lose trust in the media because they're hearing a story that makes no sense to their reality. LaRoche says that one misstep some press outlets made when covering what was happening in South Carolina's hospitals last year was a lack of context. Hospitals here did get overwhelmed with COVID patients, yes, but not always, and not to the degree that hospitals in cities like New York or Los Angeles did. 
But that level of context was not always present in the press coverage here. A high percentage of stories focused only on the worst, mainly, LaRoche says, because the worst is what stands out. Journalists are very good at seeing what is unusual, and often the unusual thing is the negative thing. A nuance to consider here is that the COVID pandemic literally locked reporters out of things that we can usually do to get a fuller story, like walk the halls of hospitals and talk to people and see how things are going. The pandemic created a situation where journalists, they had to take the anecdotes they could get when they could get them and how they could get them. And that, she says, often led to coverage that skewed towards the worst because so many leads that news outlets followed started from a stacked deck. Ship Ames is a spokesman for the South Carolina Hospital Association. He says early on, reporters got a lot of leads from things they found on social media sites and called the SCHA to see if the accusations and suggestions being made had any real grounding. Most, of course, did not. But in doing its job, the press often made it harder for health care agencies to do their jobs because they had to work to keep addressing reporters' questions. It was weekly. You know, we were chasing down stories that really did not have a solution or an answer. It's a bad catch-22 that arises when the press finds itself working to discredit misinformation that we know to be misinformation. But by doing so, we can give a platform to wacky ideas, even as we strive to dispel them. However, Ames admits that agencies like his could have done more to get out in front of rumors and theories before the press came calling. Maybe we could have been more forward-thinking and getting out in front of it, but we were concerned that we weren't the right authority. But I can't really blame the media for wanting to answer the questions that the public is asking them. Fair enough, but Michelle LaRoche says that she hopes the pandemic will provide news agencies with a chance to contemplate the value of taking a moment to assess how a story might come across, even or maybe especially in the middle of pandemonium. I think we need to do a better job of providing context on our stories. Without that context, we're giving readers the wrong impression about what that particular news, what that anomaly really means. She recommends that journalists ask themselves a question that admittedly sounds a little woo-woo. What's the kindest way we can tell a story that doesn't just steer us to conclusions that we've already made? A great series there from our coworker Scott Morgan out of Rock Hill. You can find all of his stories and those by other reporters on SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And on the way out, I found this summary in the weekly Johns Hopkins Center for Security Health email a bit depressing. So I apologize if I bum you out here. But the authors of a study published in JAMA, Network Open, provided updated estimates to previous estimates of decreasing life expectancy in the United States. The update analysis estimates that COVID-19 reduced the overall 2020 U.S. life expectancy by 1.31 years, from 78.74 to 77.43 years. The Latino population had the largest decline a little bit more than three years, followed by the black population at 1.9 years. The researchers expect the COVID-19 deaths through April 2021 will continue to negatively impact U.S. life expectancy. So again, sorry to be mentioning all this as we go into the wind down, but wanted you to know. Welcome to the wind down section, our little break from the news. We talk about life during the pandemic and want to hear your stories as well. Tell us about where you are midway through 2021. Do you even remember your New Year's resolutions? <laughs> yeah. Did you make them? Sometimes I write them down and I look back and I'm like, oh, I never learned that language. 
ever, <laughs> like year on year on year. I never did that. But maybe you've done something you want to talk about. 803-563-7169. We want to know. Didn't you get master class? <laughs> I did, but that's not for language, but I, I watched, like, all of two episodes. My friend Joanna, who I watched, who, like, we went on it with, we watched, like, two eat. Like, you know, and she's even, like, more, like, involved in that kind <laughs> yeah. of interesting stuff. Like, you just watch what you want to watch, and that was it. I, I, didn't, I didn't go beyond, like, Anna Wintour and RuPaul. <laughs> yeah, and you just that wanted was to it. see them. <laughs> and then you're like, uh, I'm more interested in the ads <laughs> than the actual. <laughs> they make it look so cool, and they're like, what did I learn? I don't know. But uh, at do we have any any uh, voicemails? Uh, you know what, Gavin? I'm gonna be uh, fully transparent here for mm-hmm. the pod for the listeners, and that um, uh, I I left uh, my work cell phone at home. <laughs> Zoinks! <laughs> and that's that's what uh, I use to to cultivate all of those. So I blew it. Oh brother, this guy stinks! Um, mm. But that isn't to say, I mean, uh, call in and shame me, please. Gavin, hit him with the number, the shame number. 803-563-7169. That's the shame line. Yeah. yeah. Please <laughs> call and, and uh, leave your best ones that I could have used here, but uh, I'm too dumb to remember yeah. my phone. But anyway, I mean, it gives us more time. So yeah. we had we had the rival everyone's favorite part of the week earlier when we had the Russ McKinney speaking. But now we have... Intern Josh's news. Josh, hello. How are you doing? I'm good, Josh. guys. I'm good. What's up? Josh. Josh. Tell us some news that we can use and that we did not know about. I'm so I always love these. Some love news that's totally unnecessary but worth talking yes! about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the people need to know. All right, cool. Um, well, quick question then. Do you guys Ooh. either consume anything vanilla flavored? I prefer not to answer. <laughs> um <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I don't hate vanilla. I'm not crazy about vanilla, but I, I mean, I, I like it. Yeah. I don't really do much vanilla because I don't really do a lot of sweets. So I would say no, I don't. But anyway, Josh, tell me, am I right guinea, or I'll be am I wrong? Here. <laughs> well, I'm the same. The only time will probably be when I eat ice cream, if I ever yeah. am eating ice cream, and that's the only time. But if you think about it, you can get pretty much anything vanilla flavored. Yogurt, mm-hmm. creamer, crown Cans. oil. Coca-Cola. Candles. Gavin, candles. candles. Gavin thinks candles are, are are flavored and not scented. <laughs> no, they are. <laughs> They're scented, not flavored. Oh, my God. I'm joking. Who cares? I'm not eating a candle. I learned that the hard way. Anyway, Josh. So when you get a candle, what do you say? Let me get the vanilla flavor? Or No, that's like the worst. If you go into a house that smells like vanilla, immediately leave that home. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Or, or or gather as you're being instructed, uh, you know, according to the wall art. Anyway. Yeah, get, gather font anywhere, yeah. Gather. Well, to the point that, well, the demand is so high to the point where it exceeds the supply mm. of vanilla bean. Mm. And although we may not have enough vanilla bean, there is one thing we do have a lot of, and that is... <laughs> Garbage. <laughs> more specific, more specifically, plastic bottles. So, according yeah. to the Guardian, about this isn't the headline. This is a little bit of a delay, but according to the Guardian, about one million plastic bottles are sold every minute around the world, and only fourteen percent are recycled. Which yeah. you know they can be turned into polyester or other fabrics used for clothing, t-shirts, swim trunks, okay. things like that. Well. A BBC report headline reports that plastic bottles could be turned into vanilla ice cream. Ooh. <laughs> this makes me nervous. I'm yeah. hungry already. <laughs> this will How? be the first time a valuable flavor, or yeah, a valuable flavor has been brewed. I, I love how they use the word brewed <laughs> oh, from, from waste plastic. 
And before you freak out, about 85% of vanillin, which is the extract responsible for vanilla smell and taste, is already mm-hmm. being synthesized from chemicals derived from fossil fuels. So this is oh, just so it's p- it's pure gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean if you're if you're getting yeah. that video, there's been a huge controversy. I yeah. follow vanilla very close. So I, I I I am I'm firmly against this, Josh. I, I I will say I I think we use too much plastic already. Do you? I don't think I I don't I I don't think we should be sous viding anything in plastic. Like I think oh, yeah. that's wrong. I, I think do microwaving your stuff in plastic oh, yeah. is wrong. Oh yeah. Like I think that's microwave. bad. So I don't know if Gavin's bragging right here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm just like I'm off the grid, baby. <laughs> I I don't I don't love this idea of eating vanilla plastic. <laughs> I think I, at I'm gonna disagree. I think this is the the next logical step. We're reclaiming all this plastic waste. It's just about time we start eating the what plastic. What do you see, Gavin? What? What? I have a plastic bottle with me in studio, and crinkle I'm going to so start, start so they eating can it. Okay, right yeah, now. No, it's really there, Ga- Gavin. Tell me what you think the next plastic food is going to be. Ooh, oh gosh. I mean, we all. I mean, the pioneer in this industry obviously was Play-Doh. We got our appetites wet as children there when we were eating the Play-Doh. I'm learning. We're learning right now that Gavin has pica. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a broader problem here. (laughs) I'm pushing my pro pica agenda by using plastic. Um, The next thing. Well, I mean, you told me about the uh, the meat glue. Meat glue is disgusting. Yeah, it's a protein that. It is FDA approved that ba- that binds scraps Meat. of other different yes. better cuts of uh, beef into, but like the scraps of it into ones that they can one say are cohesive form of beef, which that is, is sold to a yeah. local eatery near you. Yeah, you've um, had it. A- so, everyone has had it. Now that's not plastic per se, but you know that's already happening there too. I mean, the more you learn about the food industry, the more you're like. Maybe I should just sign eat me up. I'm what's so hungry. Yeah, so sign me up. Uh, what's next? Plastic yeah. food. They already got cheese with the Kraft yeah. Singles. <laughs> cheese products. Kraft Singles. Kraft Singles yeah, are not Velveeta. cheese. I mean, Caitlin, I would say Velveeta's a uh, Caitlin cheese. loves uh, a Kraft Single. Oof. Mm. And you got the wood chips there in the Parmesan. I don't know. Um, not, not anything I eat, I would say. I'm going to go bread. I'm going to go broad and say bread. Plastic Some kind bread. of bread. Some kind of bread. Some loaf. A loaf of sorts. You just slowly start adding a little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah. Next thing you know, it's 60% plastic. That's oh, already all of 40% our fish. 40% starch. Sub- Subway got in trouble <laughs> in what country, remember? Because the, the bread that Subway was using yeah. was it had too much sugar to be considered bread. This was, mm, I think it was in sugar Sweden. Bread. I forget what they country They just got in trouble here, too, because their tuna had no... Tuna DNA. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Let's tap the brakes here, guys. Now, I'm not necessarily a corporate lobbyist, but I don't see anything wrong about what Subway did. I mean, come on. It's just, <laughs> just trying to maximize profit. This is know, Gavin's and Lower some margins. Lawyer. You want a $5 foot long or what? Do you want it to be I'm not $5? buying yellowfin tuna here, guys. <laughs> mm. Well, Josh, thank you for this that news. That was great. I'm so happy with this. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we've been eating more and more plastic as a people. Um, uh, Gavin, Just like the fish. I mean, it's full circle now. We're part of the uh, system. Uh, people call in, let us know what you hope is plastic in the future. <laughs> um, Soil and green is people. And it's plastic. Um, <laughs> I mean, at least partially. But anyway, Gavin, say goodbye Great. to these fine Great folks. Great stuff, folks. Let us know. Again, we're off for the next uh, two episodes. But let us know. Give us calls. This is some time to refresh the hopper, too. So give us a ring at 803-563-7169. You can stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. 
And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina Lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. Um, That's how a baby says okay. Hey. Okay. Okay. Oh, I can't stand it.